Hello, free thinkers. I'm Mickey Z, and I welcome you to Post Woke, the New York City-based podcast where we practice intellectual self-defense. This is the fundamental thing: is that anyone can do this. You don't, you don't have to have a university degree. You don't have to be rich. You know, you don't, you don't even have to be literate because there is so much YouTube material out there. That was Maddie Harland. She is the author of *Fertile Edges: Regenerating Land, Culture, and Hope*. And she is also the co-founder of Permaculture Magazine. You'll hear my entire conversation with Maddie right after this word from our sponsor. Hey, Mickey Z here, and I'm asking you to offer some support for a project that I've been running for nearly six years. It's called Helping Homeless Women NYC. And as the name implies, I've been getting out there on the streets for, like I said, nearly six years to offer direct relief to some of the most vulnerable yet fiercest women you'll ever want to meet. If you check the show notes, you will find a direct link for how to donate at GoFundMe. If you're interested in becoming a Patreon patron or in ordering uh, restaurant gift cards directly from my wish list, shoot me an email and I'll send you that information. But I'm just requesting some support, thanking you in advance and asking you no matter what to please share the link far and wide. Now, let's get back to the show. When I was exchanging emails with Maddie Harlan before setting up this interview, there was one point where she signed off, what makes my heart sing is being outside, building and making things, and leaving a place in better heart than I have found it. Now, I love this line, but I had to ask, so when you say better heart than how I found it, most people would say better shape, and then she said, well, either one would work. And I knew right then that we would get along just fine. So, Maddie Harlan, welcome to Post Woke. Thank you. I appreciate you being here. I'm speaking to you, of course, from the United States, where the most irrigated crop in the country is lawn. So I am not exactly well-versed in permaculture. So I'm going to ask you, could you give me and the listeners a workable definition of this term and like why is this word perma plus culture like where does this whole concept come from that's a great question so first of all very simply um, permaculture is in essence a way of organizing life to be the most ecological um the the most low impact that you can possibly design within the system that you're working in. So you can look at it and you can apply it to a garden and a garden or a farm. And that's where its roots were. Uh, And I'll come back to that in a, a moment. Or you can look at it in terms of a community project, 
but I've actually designed a publishing company with permaculture principles. So permaculture has three ethics, which is earth care, people care, and um, one that I like to call future care, because it's about looking after our resources, not just for ourselves, but for forthcoming generations and looking with the long view. Um, and so it's in essence a design system that's based on observing how nature designs. So when we look at a forest, a forest can sustain itself for hundreds, indeed thousands or even millennia of years without any external inputs. No one needs to come along and give that forest fertilizer. The forest will look after itself. It's, it's a circular system. It creates its own facility. It, it has its own yields and, and it will keep going indefinitely. So we look at the principle behind natural systems and in essence, we're trying to mimic, mimic them. And these principles came from the work of two ecologists in Australia in the 1980s who were looking at um, enormous prices in, in oil and um, they were also looking at scarcity of fossil fuels and saying, hey, we need to design beyond fossil fuels an abundant, non-polluting, ecological system that once it's set up will look after itself. And they began looking at perennial tree crops as, as a model for producing food, fiber, timber for building and so forth. But beyond the 1980s, it kind of spread out from Tasmania and Australia and became quite a viral phenomena and has got spread around the world. And because we're looking at natural principles here, we can understand our own ecosystems. And so, you know, in North America, in, you have very different climates from north to south. So you would look at the principles and how your home ecosystem is working and then apply those principles to anything that you're designing, say your your backyard or your small holding, your your farm, uh, or beyond. So I hope that is kind of oh. a real bite-sized <laughs> attempt at defining permaculture. No, I th thank you for that. I think I think that's an excellent starting point because while you were talking, I was formulating questions like. Um, of course, this would differ from location to location, and you were covering the questions as I was formulating them. So I, I think this is that that's a great starting point. Um, before we go more into the uh, nuts and bolts of that, I want to ask you: besides everything that you just described, which to some degree is partially going to answer this question, what is it that drew you to this particular life choice of being so um, like? a beacon of per permaculture for more than 30 years now. <laughs> well, I, it kind of happened almost by accident. Um, we saw a film on an independent TV channel in around 1990, which was called In Grave Danger of Falling Food. And it was all about um, 
peak fossil fuels, which was quite prophetic at that time. And then it was looking at designing these natural, these systems based, based on natural systems to create such an abundant edible landscape that it, as you walked f- through it, there would be a bit of a danger of food falling on your head mm. because, you know, there was just so much going on. Um, and this was in, in a way sort of the birth of the food forest idea. And this really just grabbed me as, and I suddenly started looking at nature in a completely different way. I hadn't really had the, I suppose, literacy to understand what I was looking at in terms of how things work and the cycles that are happening with the seasons and, you know, how the plants respond at different times of years and the symbiosis and how all of, um, say, a a small forest supports itself symbiotically. And I hadn't really grasped that. Um, You know, I'm not an ecologist by training. I'm a publishing editor with a a degree in English and American literature. (laughs) So it, it kind of blew my mind. And I thought, my God, there's a whole world of literacy out there that I haven't had any understanding of. And so it was one of those moments when the door the doors fly open and, yes. the light, you know, literally the light comes in and, and you see the world in a different way. Oh, it's wonderful. I mean, it's such a blessing to encounter those moments. And then in in your case, you walk through those open doors. They blew open and you were like, all right, this is going to, I don't know where this is going to take me. And here we are talking about this. And I'm consulting you as someone who is literate in all of this. When there was back then, you're looking at yourself going, wait, this is going on around me. And I love that you called it edible landscapes because it, it's it's fascinating to ponder how not that long ago in human history, people could be wandering a countryside and just sustain themselves by the edible plants that they encountered along the way. And non-human animals still do that to this day. They don't, they don't worry about if someone owns this tree or it's not about that. It's about this, these systems that have been the self-sustaining systems that have been in place, as you said, for a millennia. And it's, it, it really um, leads you to some very practical questions and then also some larger philosophical questions about food and, and sharing. But I'm fascinated. I'm so glad that you entered that doorway and and have shared what you've learned with the public. Um, Now bringing it, I guess, to, um, some some uh, more nuts and bolts questions. When I was doing research for this, I'm in, I was encountering terms that I'm familiar with from reading, but not familiar with from in any sense of a practice. So, where do concepts like, for example, monoculture versus polyculture fit into what you are talking about and what the the publications that you um, share f- focus on and promote? Yeah, so that's a great question. So um, permaculture design principles, one of the most essential ones is is about creating diversity. So when we look at natural systems, there's always multiple species involved. You you never go into a woodland and just and that, you know, a, a native woodland and just find one species of tree. You you 
always find a polyculture of lots of different types of trees that inhabit different niches. And then you have all that incredible hidden world of fungi and microorganisms in the soil that really we've only just very recently, even in the last decade, become to appreciate and understand that it's a extraordinary multi-dimensional communication system within a forest. So, so that we take as our ideal, the idea that we don't have to have these massive monocultures that then are very um, vulnerable to pests that then have to be controlled by chemical intervention. Mm -hmm. Um, and also degrade the soil because there's no fertility going back in. They're basically um, systems that mine fertility uh, and don't replace it. And we're looking to replace that form of agriculture um, with um, polycultures. So um, agroforestry systems where you have uh, perhaps a grain crop, but then you alley crop um, trees that that have a different purpose in, you know, a different yield or an agroecological system, which is more complex and has more layers to it. Um, and the research is pointing us in the direction that when we do this, we don't actually decrease our yields, we increase them. So the more we mimic natural systems, the more abundance we, we design into our, our systems um, and the let you know we we have less pests um, mm. and and less need for chemical pesticides and fertilizers, which are becoming more and more expensive uh, um, every year now, particularly in the last year or so, where we've had a a, a crisis with um, the cost of. Uh, chemical pe uh, chemical fertilizers particularly in the UK the cost has uh, over doubled in in just the last year because of the war in the Ukraine mm. and and from listening to that answer when you say when you talk about the the, the logic of humans recognizing the the, the incredible functionality and sustainability of the systems that are already naturally in place and, you know, at, you know, AKA monoculture versus polyculture, I could, you know, very safely assume that this is going to um, position all that you're talking about as something that uh, transnational corporations would like very much to squash because they are all about the monoculture and the the pesticides and the genetically modified pesticides and plants and meanwhile by by promoting monoculture they're they're not they're not taking care of the land in the way that it was created to take care of so what what type of um, uh, opposition do you get from these uh, corporations and for the, the like the massive massive food and farming uh, companies that want to keep things going the same way because the people at the top are making a whole lot of money I mean it's a great question what's happening on the world stage now is that the corporations are still pushing this industrialized green revolution which is very chemical based mm -hmm. in countries like Africa but our political um, system in the UK, we, the UK has actually the worst 
um, record for biodiversity in Europe. And we've had got an extraordinary situation where biodiversity and, and nature is plummeting. And we've got people like Sir David Attenborough actually getting on the BBC and making films about how bad it is here. So there's been a huge sort of U-turn. And now we're beginning to see policies where we're farming for the benefit of nature as well as the benefit of yielding food. And the UK government's really beginning to alter its view on huge monocultures and not support them economically which wow. is fantastic, fantastic, brilliant news. So there is a, a deep change in policy going on in, in this the country I'm in at the moment. Um, the French have always had a marvellous uh, tradition of market gardening and uh, being great supporters of research into agroforestry, for example. They're way ahead of us guys over here. I, I, I think what's happening is the, the problem has been is, yes, all the scientific research has been funded by, by large corporations. So, of course, it's always talked about the yields in terms of uh, that, those huge sort of industrialised um, uh, monoculture uh, examples. But slowly there is this shift going on, in part because people are ill and because our, our nature is so depleted that we have to make changes. But also critically, when we farm in this more polycultural and natural way, we also lock up carbon in the soil and it becomes an incredibly successful way of stabilising um, planet uh, climate change. Thank you for that. So, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, it's fine. So, so, so there, there are many, many agendas here, um, and things are changing fast. And no longer are well. Ninety six percent of the world scientists accept that climate chaos is a reality, and it's no longer argued about politically. In, in the media, it's it's accepted. So, you know, of course, there are still conspiracies around solar flares and climate change being a myth, but generally it's a scientific fact now. And so we have to look at our agriculture and what we do with, it, with the land in terms of sequestering carbon. We've got to change things um, for our own survival, let alone the survival of all the other species we share the planet with. No, absolutely. And, and I do want to say that not everyone there when when I, I know a fair amount of people, myself included, that do have concerned that too much of the environmental group is our carbon reductionist. Like they don't focus on the other issues like you're talking about. Like you need to know about soil fertility and you also need to know about the the pollution and and the the introduction of of man-made chemicals into the environment and what concerns me sometimes with the talk about carbon is it feels like they're talking about it like a, a magic pill that oh if we fix that then we're fixed and like no the corporations need to be reined in on a lot of levels which what you're talking about it are, uh, it is exactly what we need to do because we I, I could speak for Americans now you're giving good news from from uh, 
the UK and from France, but here it's it's people are not that close to their food and they're not connected to the processes that you're talking about. And I think the past three years where suddenly there's been a lot more schisms, the people I'm encountering are way more curious about what you're doing because they want the autonomy of growing healthy food, organic food, and taking care of their health and being responsible for what they eat. So I would love to segue a little bit into what you could offer people listening who can range from having a ton of land in Montana to having um, an apartment in New York City as to what what can people do on a variety of different levels to contribute to this movement of, of um, I don't want to say going back to the past, but learning from the past and then seeking out new solutions for, for gardening and forests. But what, what can we do to take those steps regardless of where we are and understand that this is going to be good for our physical health, our mental health, our financial health, our community health? Like what Someone might be listening and say, this all sounds good, but how can I take part? Okay, that's a great question. So... It, it, we can we can be agents of positive change on so many levels so if you have a very tiny black backyard you you can grow herbs and and a few you know sa salads and I, I know that there's some fantastic people but growing you know micro salads and herbs and and some of the summer crops e even on a balcony in the middle of um the middle of a city so so that's one way of doing things but we have tremendous power as consumers as well and buying locally and buying organically and supporting your local food co-op is is as important not everyone is a vegetable grower you know some of us have other skills and other lifetime lifestyle calling so how you buy your food uh, is really important so supporting local suppliers eating seasonally and and going organic is really important as well but there's a fantastic homesteading movement in in the us um, there's some great books by publishers like chelsea green who distribute our titles in in the us as well we, we go under the name of permanent publications um, and there's new society publishers over in in canada that that do all sorts of books about permaculture and forestry and sustainable living and craft ciders and mushroom growing and community stuff as well so there's so many resources there's a whole network of people teaching permaculture in north america who've got a lot of experience Oregon State University does a free online introductory course, which is taught by some absolutely excellent people and won't cost anything to sign up to. So I, I would look, if I wanted to get involved and sort of look at my lifestyle and look at my personal health, I, I would look at, okay, so what's happening on my doorstep and what free resources are out there so that I can learn a bit more. Um, and and check things out like, like that. I love that answer because the way you focused on how not everyone is a vegetable grower. And I will con confess to sometimes feeling 
um, <laughs> unnecessarily overwhelmed when I think, well, I live in an apartment. I'm on the third floor, top floor of a building in New York City. I do have a, um, a fire escape. Um, we don't have a balcony or anything. And I can then say, I can't, I, what do I know about soil fertility? How do I know about canopies and different layers? And, and then I start thinking, there's nothing I can do. And you just pointing out, well, that may not be your role, but you here in New York City, one thing we do has is we have farmers markets. You go into Manhattan yeah. and certain days of the week, people come from Long Island, upstate New York, New Jersey, or surrounding areas to sell the food that they've grown based on the principles that you just described. And so I can play a role in that. And there, and the farmers are therefore playing their role, and it and it seems to me to inspire and remind people how important communities are because we once lived in small villages, and that's kind of how it worked. Not everyone was growing food in every small village. People had to play pay in, play individual roles. Exactly, and then the other thing I would say, Mickey, is the most important thing that we can do as a species is reconnect with nature and it doesn't matter where we live we don't need to be living in in the wilds of a, a great big forest we can be in a really big metropolitan city and just go into the park um, and spend some time sitting in in a place or and observing watching the birds watching the seasons watching the trees and the the plants come into bloom and make that part of your lifestyle and your meditation that there is going to be some time in ideally in your day where you can just go sit somewhere and and look at some look at the green and and just make those observations about what species are around and what's happening in in the plant world and and so, you know make it part of a, a health routine because when we're connected the things that we really deeply love in life we preserve and and the things we care about we put energy into and we we need to put energy and care into the natural world it's it's our home it's the thing that supports us it's our mother really and um so we need to reconnect with it as a species and just balance this crazy digital um, AI world that is emerging and has its uses. You know, I'm not a technophobe, um, but we just need to balance it with, you mentioned something about, you know, the old traditions that um, we, we, you know, our bodies, our DNA knows what makes us feel good and it's being in nature. Um, and that can be in a, in a park, you know, it doesn't have to be the wilderness. Uh, thank you for those reminders. It, it's as a lifelong city dweller, it's incredible and humbling to recognize how often I need to be reminded of that because I I walk a lot living in a city like this, but I can walk for miles and never step step on grass or dirt. I'm walking on asphalt the entire time I'm out walking and I have to actively 
consciously decide I'm going to a place where I will be in sand or grass or dirt or whatever it might be underneath a tree near a river. And it's since it doesn't, it's, it's frightening to recognize how easily you can slide into a place where you stop looking for nature. But then when you say what you, what you said, how, when you, what you deeply love is what you'll work to preserve is, is, uh, it's as fundamental and human as it gets. So I, I, truly appreciate that because it these i i could speak for myself i constantly need to be reminded because i'm not getting it from the this my surroundings so i which leads me to want to ask you um as someone who's been doing this along with your husband for so long and knows so much about this um what what is your Sur surroundings like and what is your day like do you grow <laughs> enough food in your in your on your property that you no longer need to shop i mean i I'm, i i may sound like a naive question but i am completely um unfamiliar with how potentially you might live as someone who has <laughs> this kind of knowledge okay so i am an ordinary human being i'm not an <laughs> angel um <laughs> I do have a vegetable garden. I've only been living in this property for a year. So we live in Devon on the edge of Exmoor, which is a fabulous uh, bit of wild land. And we live in about 12 acres of woodland, which we're, has, has been wonderfully neglected and is very has loads and loads of unusual and rare species in it, but it does need a bit of work. So we're balancing our time running a publishing company and we publish permaculture magazine uh, in print and digital. And then we've published well over 100 books on the subject of permaculture and living well and ecologically and low impact. And also some more philosophical stuff as well about, you know, where we are in life as a human species and where we need to go. So I balance my day, uh, I do sit in front of a computer and do my editing and my business and I have to do my accounts every day. I, I do grow vegetables, but I'm not self-sufficient. I live near a small town that has lots of growers that bring their produce, their, their meat, their cheese, their vegetables and so forth into the town on two days a week and it's a big covered market. And I, I go and buy stuff there. Um, and I'm currently eco-retrofitting the house with my other half. Um, so we're doing an experiment to see if we can heat the house from, uh, from the timber that is coming out of the wood to thin it and make it uh, more healthy and resilient. So we're not cutting down trees for firewood we're um, thinning mostly hazel coppice and then storing and seasoning that to heat heat the home so that we don't use oil. So my life is a kind of mix of very practical stuff, um, you know, making, making structures and uh, doing DIY with vegetable growing and publishing. It's it's going on on in all directions. <laughs> <laughs> I love that answer, and it it is comforting for someone like me to hear that that it it's you're you're not like you're not living in some type of um, 
Garden of Eden that, you know, there is balance and there's work to be done. But the impression I'm getting, and I would ask you to correct me if I'm wrong, is that whether it's you or anyone listening to this who says, you know what, I want to create some of these changes. And it could be retrofitting how you get your energy, or it could be someone um, growing a certain amount of plants on their fire escape. In the beginning, moving towards something that's anything in the realm of permaculture is probably a fair amount of homework and study and literal labor. But once you pass that level, there is work, but it is, the ironic part is it then becomes more self-sufficient and you might even have more free time once you get sort of your personal gardening in a flow with, with in conjunction with nature. Would that be a safe assumption for me to make? I, I think I think I can say that. Yes, I think in honesty, I can say that if you if you do practice things like no no dig gardening um, and and you create um, raised beds that you're constantly that you replenish, you have less weeding, you build fertility over years and, and they can they can be surprisingly abundant uh, even small even in a small space and we we publish quite a lot of books about things like backyard permaculture because we recognize that um, not everybody has large amounts of land to devote to self-sufficiency and what they're actually looking for is to be a little more healthy more self-reliant and to grow stuff that they like basically I like that. And, and that's a perfect segue into, into where we're going to wrap up, where I would love you to take this opportunity to share with us a little bit more about the, your publishing work and how the, the books and publications that you're responsible for, whether you're actually the one doing the writing or you're, you're um, getting other writers, editing them. How does all of this, in your eyes, contribute to boosting um, your readers physical mental and spiritual health like how what is this combination of material and content that you release that could help us in so many ways okay so in the early 90s we started off as book publishers in print because that was where the technology was um we then set up a print magazine permaculture magazine and mostly i had written a couple of books before that but mostly i've been working as an editor encourage commissioning and then encouraging and helping other people to get their expertise down on paper in in a way that is useful for other people and so we've done well over 100 books now and 116 editions of Permaculture magazine. But we've never stopped there. So we started a, a website in 1996, which was quite ahead of the times yeah. then. And that's never had a pay payment gateway on it. It's always been free um, and searchable. So that, that was another aspect of um, just giving away information because we're, we're here to make the world a better place, not not just to make a buck. Um, and then, you know, I've got kids. So my kids came along and, and they said, Mum, you've got to get on Facebook. Mm-hmm. You know, that's where everyone's hanging out. This was, you know, 20 odd years ago. Um, so we started a Facebook page, which now has about a third of a million 
followers and and then obviously instagram came along and so we have permaculture magazine on instagram um and we've had a youtube channel for oh, i can't even remember how long maybe since about 2008 and um, and we have loads of films on there some we make ourselves some are, are made by collaborators and there's loads of playlists and information about permaculture there again totally free so we have this mixed sort of ecosystem some of it you have to subscribe to but if you subscribe to permaculture magazine you get access to our complete archive of two a hundred and sorry, I was forgetting. Hundred and fifteen of copies, all searchable by subject. So, wow. so we we give away the archive, um, and and again, our books are exist in print or on ebook book platforms on iBook or Kindle or whatever. So, what really what we're trying to do is create opportunities for life-changing learning because it is so positive this 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 lifestyle is so positive from a psychological point of view from a physical health point of view from an ecological low impact perspective you know it just ticks all the boxes so what we want to do is we just want to get as many people as possible in the world into this way of thinking not in a cultish way but just let people choose what they want to do to make positive changes and then we have something called the permaculture magazine prize awards and every year we have a, a small fund that we fundraise for and we give money to projects usually not in uh, the first world but in um, countries that don't have access to a lot of Western currency and big funds. And we give money to really small projects who make a big, big difference. And we do that this year. We've done that in association with Lush Cosmetics, who, who have the Lush Spring Prize. So, so what, what we're just trying to do is support people. We send uh, educational materials out as well to free of charge to um, particularly projects as i said in countries without access to west western currency and we're just trying to spread the word as much as we can as a small group of of people you know we're not backed by big corporates we don't have um foundations unfortunately that that help us with this this is all totally from our own work and and our own activities in in the 30 years we've been doing this uh I, what what a role model because you to, to sum up what i heard in that answer there is that we live in a culture in which a lot of people who have an immense amount of money or power or any combination of that don't make information accessible they want to be the keeper of certain information certain secrets if you will and what you're doing is you're 
um, approaching this from a mindset of, that seems very natural, like like as in nature, where this everything is out there and you pick and choose. Where if someone went to a vegetable garden, not everyone's going to like all the same vegetables, but you're making them all available, and you're saying this is this is the sum at the moment. This is the sum amount of what we've learned in 30 years of doing this. And here, check it out. And you're leading by example by being a flexible role model where, as you described that, you went from being a hard copy magazine to being online in 1996, which is really epic, and then transitioning into to Facebook and Instagram and YouTube and saying, whatever the means are, we're going to adjust and we're going to be flexible and use it to our benefit sort of promoting your own version of like a biodiversity where it's like people are going to find us where they are because we are where they are, we're everywhere out there. So I, I, as I'm listening to you, I'm just thinking your, your, your business model is, is very permaculture. It's, it's, it's sustainable. Absolutely. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's just a very inspiring to hear how you approach um, multiple aspects of your life. And, and I, truly appreciate you um, taking time to be here. And for the record, I'm going, I was taking notes as you were talking. I'm going to make, I'm going to add Chelsea Green, who's, who's been very good to me in terms of connecting me with guests and so on. I'll make sure there's a link for them. I'm going to look up that Oregon State University. Um, I already have your Instagram. I will add the YouTube. And after we're done, if you want to send me any other links that you think would make sense to be in yeah. the show notes, because I would I would assume that people would listen and and being human beings, they get curious and they have more questions. And where can I find out more? And and we we just kind of touched on on some basics and hopefully inspired people to uh, want to get busy and get into that DIY world where hey, I could do this. I don't need to rely on someone that looks like a quote unquote expert. I can learn this. And and um. Well, well, that's Mickey. You've hit the nail on the head, uh, to use a good English um, <laughs> phrase, because this is the fundamental thing: is that anyone can do this. You don't, you don't have to have a university degree. You don't have to be rich. You know, you don't, you don't even have to be literate, because there is so much YouTube material out there. Um, and indeed, there are there are people that are not literate learning this stuff on simple cell phones, just logging on and, and watching YouTube's and learning how to do stuff. So, you know, this is this is a really democratic way of sharing, and and for me, that's a fundamental principle. You know, apple trees don't yield apples and say, "Well, you can pick this apple, but you can't." You know, there's no, there's none of that sort of um, sectarianism in nature, and and that's really where we've got to go. Of course, I have to make a living. You know, I have bills to pay like any other human being, so I have to sell some of the products that we create, and I have to pay our printers and our suppliers. Um, but I can also give away um, a reasonable amount of of what I produce. Um, because you know, life is that life gives us those choices, and lots of people do that. You know, you get people growing vegetables, they go take it to market, they sell it, but they also have the gift economy designed into their system where they might be supplying an old people's uh home or or a, a school or something else, um, at a, either a reduced rate or, or free of charge if they've got excess. So I'm no different. 
but I think it's a really important that that designing in that aspect of philanthropy is incredibly important for all of us as a business model. I could, you know, we don't need to be mean. <laughs> I couldn't agree more. And one of the one of the many many gifts of running a podcast is to get to meet people like yourself, who perhaps the circumstances wouldn't have shaped up for us to cross paths. And then I hear the stories that people of how people are living their lives, and it encourages me that we, you know, it doesn't always make headlines or clickbait. Uh, articles when someone is just being kind, like you just said, ru running a vegetable garden, selling some in town, and then leaving leaving a certain amount aside for for um, neighbors or a old age home that could use some free food. That may not make headlines, but we know they're out there. And when I interact with someone like you, and you you remind us of that, I think it's that's the important takeaway here that that it's in all of us to a learn this stuff that you're talking about and b to share what we've learned and share what the 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 fruits of our labors and and i'm really really very very pleased to, to meet you and to to learn about what you're doing and just to see how you live your life as a publisher as a gardener and as a human being in a very diverse and and uh, sharing way and so thank you for being a role model well it's been my absolute pleasure and i'm very grateful to you to to have invited me over so that i could talk about these things because they always make me smile makes me happy I'll be back with some closing thoughts after one more word from our sponsor. Hey, Mickey Z here. I trust you're enjoying this episode, but I wanted to take a quick break to request that you seriously consider becoming a paid subscriber to Post Woke, because Post Woke is more than this podcast, which is a weekly podcast with crucial, important conversations with crucial and important guests. Post Woke is also a Substack on which I post on a daily basis. I'm talking about written posts. And I, first and foremost, I am a writer. I have 12 books out and I have been writing for many decades. And so you are getting quality content at least once a day, all for $5 a month. And no matter what you decide, you can become a free subscriber if you choose. I ask you to please share the link and spread the word. And while you're at it, Check the show notes for information on how to order the post-woke t-shirt. It is a completely cool, kick-ass shirt, and you could show the world what your favorite podcast and Substack is. So I thank you in advance for your support. Again, I urge you to spread the word, and let's get back to the show. We live in a time when the powers that shouldn't be and I'm talking about the World Economic Forum, Klaus Schwab, Bill Gates, and people of that ilk, they are always trying to draw us further away from nature. They have this delusional belief that they can do things superior to nature. And these parasites work hard to convince us that our best future is doing things like eating bugs while living a digital virtual life. So if you take nothing else away from my conversation with Maddie Harlan, it's an awareness that we can and we must live in sync 
with nature. And it's actually the best possible thing for us in a social sense, too. Because as she talked about, when you get in sync with nature and you go back to DIY roots, you find ways to share whatever skills you have, trading them with other people looking to trade their skills and tools and gifts. And that's precisely how community is created. And that is precisely how things like the Great Reset is brought down. So whenever you have an opportunity to learn how to be closer to nature, to learn these valuable fundamental skills. I urge you to jump on that opportunity and to make sure you don't miss that opportunity, keep your guard up. <laughs>